stand by this faith, the Reverend Olympia Brown said. First woman in this country to be ordained to the ministry in 1863. Stand by this faith. This faith for her was universalism, a religious tradition which we have inherited, which merging with Unitarianism has become what we call Unitarian Universalism today. And you will also find Universalist Unitarian congregations, at least two in California, in Santa Paula and Riverside, whose roots are as Universalist churches prior to the merger of Unitarianism and Universalism in 1961. But we're all part of the same association. But I digress. Imagine that. My digression, however, can serve as an invitation to our UU and U classes this April. Loads of interesting stuff there about our history as Unitarian Universalists and the history of this congregation, which began as a Unitarian congregation before the merger. Okay, back to what Universalist Minister Olympia Brown said. Stand by this faith, she said. Work for it and sacrifice for it. Rejoice that we are worthy to be entrusted with this great message. Rejoice that you are strong enough to work for a great, true principle without counting the cost. Rejoice that you are strong enough to work for a great, true principle without counting the cost. This statement led me to think about what we mean when we say counting the cost and why, in this case, at least according to Olympia Brown, we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't count the cost when we are working for a great true principle. I'm not sure if that's possible. What I mean is that I'm not sure if it's possible for humans to suspend the tendency to count the cost to run a cost-benefit analysis, as it were, in our heads for almost anything we do. And I'm not just talking about money, although that is often a factor. I'm not saying that we, that I, always do a good or reasonable or insightful job of running that cost-benefit analysis. I'm not saying that we shouldn't reflect on this tendency. Indeed, I think we should, which is why I'm presenting this sermon. But it seems to me that on some level, this is how we decide things. What is the cost to me of doing this as compared to the benefits received or the possible benefits from doing something else? The problem, I think, may be not so much with the process as the fact that we don't consider all the information. The problem may be with the way we limit data along with considering what data we have from a limited perspective. Limited or distorted perspective. Advertisers know this. So they work at reducing perceived costs and inflating perceived benefits. The actual function of a product is rarely the focal point of a commercial or an online or printed ad, but rather the images of people that seem far more attractive, joyful, and fulfilled than we are, 
The implied, if outrageously unrealistic, promise is that in purchasing this product, we could join with this group of shiny, happy people they are showing us. Such implied promises influence us far below the surface of our conscious mind, because if we stopped to actually think about it, we would know better. So maybe to simply realize that a cost-benefit analysis is going on somewhere inside us all the time may help us to shine a light on this process. On the other side, these same advertisers urge us to underestimate costs. How often is free actually free? How often do we spend more to save money than we would have otherwise, considering we might not have made the purchase at all. Why is the price $15.98 rather than $16? And I am not trying to dissuade you from bargains or teach you how to shop wisely. Believe me, I would not be the person to talk to about this. More important than any advertising tricks about free offers and limited time savings is the fact that we are led to believe or lulled into believing that the cost of something is the same as the purchase price. Is it? Back in 2005, a documentary on Walmart was released with the subtitle, The High Cost of Low Price. Well beyond Walmart itself, I found that to be a powerful and memorable phrase the high cost of low price. What are the hidden costs to the products we buy? In this case, the filmmakers raised issues about the wages Walmart was paying, the effect on local communities and services, the international labor practices associated with their products, among other factors, with a negative impact. All to say that the price I pay at the register is not the total cost for the product to the wider community. Bernice Johnson Regan of Sweet Honey in the Rock wrote a song in 1985 that illustrates this beautifully, if painfully. To keep it beautiful, I won't sing it, but I will read it. I wear garments touched by hands from all over the world. 35% cotton, 65% polyester. The journey begins in Central America, in the cotton fields of El Salvador, in a province soaked in blood. Pesticide sprayed workers toil in a broiling sun, pulling cotton for $2 a day. Then we move on up to another rung, Cargill, a top 40 trading conglomerate takes the cotton through the Panama Canal up the eastern seaboard, coming to the U.S. of A. for the first time in South Carolina at the Burlington Mills. Joins a shipment of polyester filament courtesy of the New Jersey Petrochemical Mills of DuPont. DuPont strands of filament begin in the South American country of Venezuela, where oil riggers bring up oil from the earth for $6 a day. Then Exxon, largest oil company in the world, upgrades the product in the country of Trinidad and Tobago, then back into the Caribbean and Atlantic seas 
to the factories of DuPont on the way to the Burlington Mills in South Carolina to meet the cotton from the blood-soaked fields of El Salvador. In South Carolina, Burlington factories hum with the business of weaving oil and cotton into miles of fabric for Sears, who takes this bounty back into the Caribbean Sea, headed for Haiti this time. May she be one day soon free. Far from the Port-au-Prince Palace, third world women toil doing piecework to Sears specifications for $3 a day. My sisters make my blouse. It leaves the third world for the last time, coming back into the sea to be sealed in plastic for me, this third world sister, and I go to the Sears department store where I buy my blouse on sale for 20% discount. And she ends with this line, which is also the title of the song, Are My Hands Clean? What is the real cost of what I purchase? What is the cost of that which I believe benefits me? What is the real cost of the price at the pump for gas? What is the cost of the 300 million tons of plastic produced each year? What is the cost of my right to bear arms? asked the youth yesterday at the March for Our Lives rally. How do we figure the real cost of something? Not only the personal cost, but in the language of our tradition, the interdependent cost. The cost to the wider community and to the web of all existence. As Naomi Klein said so eloquently, we all know or at least sense that the world is upside down. We act as if there is no end to what is actually finite, fossil fuels and the atmospheric space to absorb their emissions. And we act as if there are strict and immovable limits to what is actually bountiful, the financial resources to build the kind of society we need. Building on a theme from last week, the myth of scarcity, she writes, the task of our time is to turn this around, to challenge this false scarcity, to insist that we can afford to build a decent, inclusive society while at the same time respect the real limits to what the earth can take. I am talking about changing the underlying values that govern our society, that is hard to fit into a single media-friendly demand and it's also hard to figure out how to do it. But it is no less urgent for being difficult. And that upside-downness happens not only with the money I spend, but with the other valuable, maybe even more valuable resource I have, time. Because I find it hard to admit that I am a mortal being. I mean, I have come to accept that you are going to die, but me? <laughs> because I live in a death-denying culture, my cost-benefit analysis can become skewed and distorted when it comes to how I spend my time, too. 
My schedule can all too easily be built in inverse proportionality, maybe even perverse proportionality to the true importance and value of each item. After all, if I have not accepted that there will be an end, if I have not accepted that in my very bones, but am operating out of this obliviousness to the fact that death is real, I can convince myself that there will always be time to do the really important things, to risk the important conversations, to express who I think I am, to celebrate those whom I love, to listen for what calls me, and then to follow. There will be time. And wouldn't it be nice if before that time I took care of all these other little things and made sure I had enough money and made sure the house was clean and made sure that everything was organized properly and then, and then I will do all those important things that I know are important, that I know are of far more value than any of my present concerns, that I know would move me closer to my highest aspirations, but first, but first let me take care of just these few things. I begin to imagine, in effect, that I don't have to choose, that I can just postpone those really important, valuable, worthy things until I have cleared up all this other stuff. And when I see myself doing that, I remember a beloved member of this congregation, Carol Norton. One of the last things she said to me on the phone before she died was, I thought I would have more time. I thought I would have more time. And I have to say, I am betting that a great many of us here today, when we are facing the imminence of our own deaths, will be thinking the same thing. I thought I would have more time. Barbara Curry mentioned a couple of weeks ago how highly unlikely she was a snappy dresser would be spoken as part of a eulogy or written as part of an obituary or engraved onto a tombstone. It does not rise to the level of the most important things we remember about people, and yet many people put a lot of energy into that. In just such a way, it has been pointed out that things that may seem of great importance to us at the moment may not be the things about ourselves that we most cherish as we review our lives. In words attributed sometimes to Rabbi Harold Kushner and sometimes to Massachusetts Senator Paul Songus, nobody on their deathbed ever said, I wish I had spent more time at the office. Rejoice that we are worthy to be entrusted with this great message. Rejoice that you are strong enough to work for a great true principle without counting the cost. I think that Olympia Brown was not so much worried about our counting the cost, especially if we stop to consider the real value of working for a great true principle. Then the personal cost will look small compared to the interdependent benefit. I think she was cautioning us not to count the cost from that limited perspective of our immediate concerns, not to reduce the world to numbers of dollars or hours prioritizing the least important things, convinced we will always have time for the more important. She was cautioning us not to use counting the cost as an excuse 
not to work for a great true principle. Practical things need to be done. Clothes need to be purchased. And you have to go out on the labyrinth after the service to see those wonderful clothes that are waiting for you. Houses need to be cleaned. Jobs need to be tended. But think of your weekly tasks, your monthly calendars, your daily priorities. Are they pushing the most important things out of the way? Are we acting as if there is no end to what is actually finite, time, and acting as if there are strict and immovable limits to what is actually bountiful, love. There is more love somewhere.